by the Numbers Basketball. I am your host, Jacob Birkinshaw. Welcome back to part three of our ongoing series on the greatest teams of all time. Today, we're going to be covering everything from 1999 all the way up to present day, 2020. Let's get into it. So, that's right, we're going all the way up to 2020. And even though I'm recording this the day before the 2020 NBA Finals start, I can tell you it's not really going to matter. I've run some numbers. I've had a look into what could happen in these finals. Best case scenario for any of these teams is the Lakers end up at about the 35th best team of all time, which doesn't impact what we're going to be talking about today very much. So this does count for the 2020 season, even though the 2020 season has not finished. And by the time this episode gets released, only game one of the 2020 NBA finals between the Heat and Lakers will have been played. So you can listen to this afterwards and you can start to think how those teams might compare to some of the teams we're going to talk about today. Probably wouldn't win, really. It's not likely. We're going to be talking about some very, very good teams, which isn't surprising because we're talking about the greatest teams of a period of over 20 years. Today, we're going to be doing five teams and an honorable mention. Now that we don't have the Bulls and Michael Jordan hanging over our heads, taking up six of the top 10 spots or four of the top five spots, we're going to get back to just doing a top five and an honorable mention so that we can maybe dive a little bit deeper into these teams. If you have, if you don't know what the process we're going to be using, please go back and start from episode one. I understand if you don't want to listen to my voice for three, four hours, whatever this is going to be, but I'm trusting that you have started in part one, you haven't just began in part three, and you know what we're going to be talking about, because I don't want to rehash all the same stuff again for you guys who have been listening from part one and maybe you've listened to it today you've just gone through and listened to my voice the entire day if you have i'm sorry if you've taken it over a week you've had a few breaks then smart idea so you know what we're going to be using we're using percentiles we're going to be talking about my final plus minus data and we're going to be kind of diving into a bit more about some of these teams there is one team which i think people are going to be surprised did not make the cut i'm not even going to mention the names honestly you can get to the end of this see if you figured out who it was we're going to start with honorable mention sixth place a team a lot of people would consider one of the greatest of all time the 2001 la lakers the 2001 LA Lakers are only sixth on this ranking. And we'll get into why that is the case now. Their regular season offensive data, 96th percentile. Regular season defensive data, 26th percentile. Ooh, there we go. There's, there's the issue right there. Overall, 79th percentile in the regular season ever. Not great that 26th percentile that is atrocious for a team as good as they are just to give you some perspective right i have all of this in a table an excel spreadsheet and i use 
uh, conditional formatting for the color. So it automatically takes, say, regular season offensive data, the entire column, it'll take all those numbers and it will do it by like red to blue in percentiles of all the data in that 1,455 team column and do that for, you know, playoff defensive data, offensive data, net data, regular season defensive data, et cetera, et cetera. As you can guess, the very top of the list is just an ocean. It's just blue, some light blues, some very dark blues, but it's just blue. Apart from this one little dot of red, which is the LA Lakers regular season defensive rating, which is bad. For these teams, it's it's bad. It's a lot worse than the worst uh, of any team. In fact, I don't know when a team as high ranked as them actually has a worse regular season defensive rating. It is actually the 123rd ranked 2010 Phoenix Suns. So the LA Lakers have the worst regular season defense of any team in the top 100. But with all that being said, once this Lakers team gets to the playoffs, they have the best playoffs run ever of any team. And it's not particularly close. They are plus 20 across 16 games. They are the ultimate flipped switch in NBA history between their regular season, which is the worst regular season of any team in the top 50. As I said, the worst regular season defense of any team in the top 100. And I'll tell you now, they are the 13th best team on my rankings. And it's all down to this playoff plus minus data. Bear in mind, they ran through the Portland Trailblazers in 2001. Still a good team. Not quite as good as the 2000 team. Very good, though. The Kings, who are climbing up to the peak they would be in 2002 and 2003. And the San Antonio Spurs, who are still a very good team in 2001 as they transition into the purely Duncan-led team they would become in 2003, 2005, before, you know, Manu and Parker would take over in 2007 a bit more, take more of the reins and going forward. Still a very good team. All three of those combined for an 0-12 record against the LA Lakers. Only once did the Lakers win a game against those three teams by less than five points. Once. The Kings held them to, I think it was like a... 99 to 96 win something like that they won by three and that's the only time they won by less than plus five and their only loss in those playoffs was obviously game one the nba finals famously to Allen iverson where he puts up what 48 points something crazy like that has an outstanding game one of the nba finals one of the best game ones ever kobe actually has his worst playoff game of the entire run by quite a way. He goes like six for 22, like six turnovers, something ridiculous like that, like a really, really poor performance from Kobe. And you think if that changes to a seven and 22 or even, you know, in a seven and 21, I I didn't look at exactly how many shots he took in overtime. So I can't give you an exact um, shooting 
split for that. But if he just makes one more shot of the like 30% true shooting he put up, the Lakers win in regular time. It doesn't go to overtime. The Lakers go 15-0 in the playoffs and become the only team in NBA history to sweep the playoffs. That doesn't happen. That has not happened. But to put some color on what they actually did in that playoffs, they put up plus 20.7 in the playoffs. This is this might date this pod if you're listening to it, say, a year from now, two years from now, where I hope it will still be evergreen, unless some team has just come along and blown some of these other teams out of the water. I think this ranking will stay the same going forward, probably for a few years. Still, at least mostly stay the same. But in the 2020 playoffs, in round one, the Toronto Raptors swept the Brooklyn Nets very easily. The Nets were a terrible, terrible team, relatively speaking. I mean, you know, they they didn't have Kyrie or Durant or any of these players. I think Karis LeVert got hurt. I can't now remember now. It was only like a month ago, but... With the bubble time and COVID, time moves differently. Yeah, remember that? 2020 and COVID. The Toronto Raptors won the series 4-0. They had a plus-minus of about plus 19.5. Absolutely demolished the Brooklyn Nets. In 2001, across four series, the LA Lakers put up plus 20.7. They did what Toronto did to the Brooklyn Nets in the 2020 playoffs in the first round is what the Lakers did to the entire 2001 playoffs, but worse. That is the level of team that we are talking about here. Shaq is, he isn't Shaq Y2K. He isn't, Shaq Y2K is one of the greatest seasons ever put up. Like that probably eclipses any season from guys like Wilt or Bird or Magic or Hakeem or Russell or even guys like Kareem and obviously Kobe, Duncan, Garnett. Name a top player who isn't Jordan and LeBron. There's a good chance Shaq 2000 is better than those seasons. Shaq 2001 is probably a bit below Shaq 2000, but I'd still say Shaq is playing at a level that maybe a handful of other players in NBA history have ever reached. That's the level he's playing at. And then we have Kobe, who has stepped up tremendously on offense. This is really the birth of Kobe, the offensive machine, the the engine that Kobe would become on offense. I think defensively, he's already slipped slightly from his real, real peak at the turn of the century, where... I've never been a big fan of Kobe's defense. I think it's very overrated historically, but he was a legit all-defense candidate for a couple years there. Maybe three or four years, he was a legitimate all-defensive candidate at the backcourt positions. He's not like some amazing, amazing defender, but he's still quite good in 2001, and offensively, he is just exploding. He's, to me, a lot better than someone like Iverson was in 2001, and he's a lot better than most players you can compare him to. I think he compares quite well to like a low-end MVP-level player 
in 2001, like like an Iverson, like a Derek Rose. I think he probably outperforms both of those in his 2001 season. And you combine those two together, you have this incredible binary star system that I don't think has ever been replicated, maybe by one team that we'll get into at some point, maybe this episode. I don't think it's really been replicated, this inside-outside balance between if you try to stop Shaq in the post, you can't really stop him, but you can try. If you do that, you're leaving Kobe on an island against someone, and that is game over. If you try to load up on Kobe, well, you can't leave Shaq on an island. Obviously, then it's, then it's absolutely game over. Like what? Do you, how you? How what? What? How you? Do you want him to go for forty and twenty rebounds or something? Like, don't do that. Just just don't leave Shaq alone with one guy. Now, I don't think there's ever been a balance like that struck in NBA history. I think when Wilt and West were playing, Wilt is certainly more of a defensive juggernaut by the time they're playing together. As I said on an earlier pod, he really embraces his inner Tyson Chandler by the time the 70s Lakers roll around. Kareem and Oscar. Oscar is a lot older and deferential towards Kareem. And then at the same time, Kareem and Magic, I think Kareem starts to become more deferential towards Magic. And Magic, though a much better offensive player than Kobe, in my opinion, just much, much better in terms of value, he isn't as good a scorer. Even as good a scorer as Kobe is in 2001, where I don't think he's reached peak Kobe levels. And then you have this very good team around, this binary star system. You have Big Shot Bob, Robert Horry, who's a wonderful role player who gets often, I think, irresponsibly thrown into this rings argument. He's used more as a pawn in other people's discussion than he is as a legitimate player. And that's unfortunate because Robert Horry is a wonderful role player. He really pops as an extra passer in a team. He's a good shot taker. I don't like to talk about clutch, but he has the name Big Shot Bob for a reason. And he is he's additive. Wherever he goes, he is an additive piece. You have Derek Fisher, a steadying hand. You have Rick Fox, who is very, very tough in this team, and he really sticks them together. And Jeff Perlman's book on the Kobe Shaq Lakers is a recent he's he's as I'm recording this, he's doing the podcast tour going through, you know, the full 48, um, Bill Simmons pod, all this kind of stuff. He is going through them, advertising his book. And it's really interesting listening to him talk about this Kobe and Shaq tandem, you know, how different they were as people, but how how powerful both their egos were. Like, I don't want to get into armchair psychology about who they were as people, why they were like that, but it's well documented what both Shaq and Kobe were like as people. Kobe is an enigmatic figure, I would say partially of of his own nature and a lot of his own creation, which it's it's tough to really draw the line at what point one becomes the other. And Shaq obviously is this incredibly bombastic person who I think in a lot of ways can rub people the wrong way in kind of how he is, but I think is also very tongue-in-cheek about it. And but obviously they were chalk and cheese together. 
they did not mesh well. Now, they're older and they appear to have settled those differences, but at the time, you can imagine how volatile that dressing room was, especially when you have two players as talented as they were, Shaq as this generational talent, this real, you know, the second coming of Wilt Chamberlain level player, one of the most hyped players ever coming into the league. And he lived up to, I think, a lot of that hype. Some people would disagree with that. I think you you look at what Co- what Shaq actually did and what more do you really want from him? He has an outside argument as a top five player ever, certainly top 10, without question, a top 10 player ever. What more can you really... If, if LeBron had that career or the same kind of level of career that Shaq had where, you know, maybe he's top five, definitely top 10, it's really unfair, I think, to say, uh, you know, he should have been better. It's like, you know, LeBron exceeded what he should have been. I think Shaq met expectations of what he should have been and maybe even exceeded them too slightly. I would say exceeded them in terms of top-end ability. And then you have Kobe, who is this up-and-coming player, taken 13th, very young. At that time, that was so uncommon. You had, I think, Garnett was the first one since like Moses Malone, and that was the year before. And then Kobe comes, jumps out of high school as well, and he's very different. As I say, he's very enigmatic. Even at that age, he was meant to be like that. And it's just, this this, this is going to explode at some point. And it would obviously explode. But it seems like hearing from Jeff Perlman, a big contributing factor to how veterans for the team were chosen was based on how they could balance this egotistical maelstrom in the Lakers dressing room with Kobe and Shaq and trying to make sure those two work together in tandem to reach their peak. And their peak was the 2001 playoffs where, bear in mind I said that regular season-wise they had an offensive rating 96 percentile, defensively 26 percentile, overall 79th percentile. Thanks to the greatest playoff run ever, that changes to a final plus-minus of offensively 99th percentile, defensively 84th percentile. So they jump from the 26th in the regular season to the 84th percentile overall. Huge jump. Overall, 99th percentile ever. All these teams are going to be 99th percentile ever. As I said, the Lakers are the 13th best team of all time. Offensively, they're actually the 7th best offense of all time, which just tells you how damn good this team was. And they had, by my estimates, plus 83 as their final plus minus. Bear in mind, as I said, plus five is about a top 100 team ever. Plus six, you're looking at closer to a top 50 team ever. Plus seven, like top 30 team ever. Um, You get to plus eight, you're in like top 20, top 15. And then plus nine is for like the real top five. So this Lakers team is exceptional. If you want to say that this team could be any other team in NBA history in a seven-game series. I'm not going to push too hard on that. I'm just going to let you have that one. There are other teams I would choose before them. There are a handful, 
But if you asked me to bet with a gun to my head, this 2001 Lakers team against some teams ranked higher than it in these rankings, these plus minus rankings, I think at least five of the teams ranked higher. I wouldn't take over the Lakers in a seven game series, which is testament to how incredible they were, but also how lackadaisical they were in the regular season to allow them to fall down as low as they have. Anyway, moving on to number five. In fifth place, we have the 2015 Golden State Warriors. That's right, the 2015 Golden State Warriors, not the 2016 Golden State Warriors. They didn't make this list. The 2015 Golden State Warriors, fifth best team of this era. Regular season, offensive rating, 97th percentile. Defensively, 92nd percentile. Overall, 99th percentile. They actually have the 10th best regular season ratings of all time. I'm just going to jump right into it. Final data, offensively, 94th percentile. Defensively, 98th percentile. Overall, 99th percentile ever, unsurprisingly, plus 8.4. Just edging out the LA Lakers. And the LA Lakers were 13th best team of all time. This Golden State Warriors 2015 is the 11th best team of all time. And I actually think in a lot of ways, the 2015 and 2016 Golden State Warriors, there are certainly other contenders. I would say some of the Boston teams of the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, the Celtics and Lakers of the 80s, I think had a huge impact on the way the game was played. The Jordan Bulls, I think, had a big impact on the way the game was played. I think the seven seconds or less Suns had a big impact on the way the game was played. The beautiful game Spurs had a big impact. But I think in terms of obvious, immediate landscape shifting, just blowing up the preconceptions of what basketball should be played like, the Golden State Warriors probably have the biggest tangible impact in affecting change on a league-wide level. Obviously, we can talk about this period of the Golden State Warriors. We have the death lineup, which actually only played 100 minutes in the regular season. That Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Iggy, Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green lineup only played 100 minutes in the regular season. Obviously, in the playoffs, they shifted to that a lot more. And that kind of, that was the light bulb moment where suddenly the flood doors opened and this team really, really took off. They, I think they get bad mouths because of injury help en route to the championship as a way to denigrate their championship. Because if you want to, you can do that to pretty much any championship run, which isn't something I'm into. It's not something I want to do here to say such and such championship run, they have an asterisk or blah, blah, blah. But... They are all hard. They all need some level of luck. And they are all need context around them to really show you how valuable it is. Because winning a championship one year doesn't make you better than a team which didn't win it in a different year. Winning the championship does not matter to these rankings. As I said in episode one, the reason it does not matter is for this exact reason. Winning a championship in a given year 
doesn't make you better than a team that didn't win it in their year. With that being said, though, I think that this team certainly did get some help on the way, luck-wise, as all champions do. I don't think they win the title if the Cavaliers have a full roster. I think maybe even just having Kyrie, having that extra release valve on offense with LeBron playing the way he was playing, that might just be enough to tip the balance in favor of Cleveland. But it didn't happen. The 2015 Warriors won. And I think in a lot of ways, actually, Mark Jackson gets credit for this team that he shouldn't get. When you you look at um, how their numbers jump up from 2014 to 2015, if you just look at them in a raw data set, you could say their defense actually stays about the same. If anything, it gets ever so slightly worse from 2014 to 2015, but it's about the same level. But offensively, they take this seismic jump from 2014 to 2015, and it's not a one-to-one comparison. We can't treat it as taking a huge step forward on offense and keeping defense the same is like there's some inertia here from Mark Jackson. There isn't, because to create an offense that impactful compared to the previous year and maintain the defense, that's not inertia on Mark Jackson's part. That's a revolution on Steve Kerr's part. Steve Kerr absolutely revolutionized this team. Draymond and Steph Curry absolutely revolutionized this team. I have said in the past, I think the Steph and Draymond pick and roll is the most consequential play in NBA history. By that, I mean that Draymond being unlocked as that five-man, I mean, within the space of 18 months, this team made an entire position extinct. Jaleel Okafor was drafted third in 2015. By the time the 2015 season was over, he was a dinosaur. That's what happens when a team revolutionizes the game like the Golden State Warriors did in 2015 and 2016. If you just look at pace of play in the five years leading up to 2015, we're looking at about 90, 92 possessions per game. In the five years since then, they've risen every year. We are now talking about 100 possessions a game. If we look at um, quality of shots if we look at something like true shooting percentage or offensive rating true shooting percentage in the five years leading up was about 53 percent which was very good that was in line with most historical data which had kind of plateaued for the past 30 years in the past five years that has risen up and it is now at nearly 56 and a half percent that's a huge difference The offensive ratings for these teams, bear in mind, offensive ratings is basically how many points you put up per per 100 possessions. For the whole league, the past four years have been the four best in NBA history. That's 2020, 2019, 18, and 17, the four best in NBA history, and has broken the record three times, 2017, 2019, and now again in 2020. The league has broken the record for league-wide offensive rating and efficiency. 
it's it's tough to say it's all down to the Golden State Warriors because the Golden State Warriors are still a team built on the shoulders of giants. They are a team that synthesizes Phil Jackson and Tex Winter's triangle offense. That's something Steve Kerr gives a lot of credit to in how he structures his team and that read and react style that if I'm here and this is happening, you move here, you cut, you set a screen, you see how the defense responds to you and then you respond to it. There's a lot of that involved in their offense. And I think that's actually why their offense is as good as it is, even when they get into the playoffs against these teams that can lock down on them. Because you can't lock down totally on someone who is reacting to what you're doing. Someone who isn't running a set offense the way someone like Houston would. That D'Antoni system where it's a Harden just dribble, 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 set ISO, you know, they used to run quite a bit more screening action. Now it's more of an ISO drive and kick game where they aren't as reactionary to what you do to them. Whereas this Golden State Warriors team all through this run has been very, they will read and react to what you give to them, which is why last year and in 2018, the Golden State Warriors were actually one of the highest rated teams in mid-range shots because teams would close off the paint against them teams would push up on the three and there were all these soft spots in the mid-range where Kevin Durant could step in and take what is for him like a 55% shot from 16 feet and that on a lot of possessions for Golden State Warriors was the best shot in that possession and that meant the floor of their offense was incredibly high because you can take away these high efficiency shots at the perimeter or at the rim and by doing that you are giving two or three of the greatest shooters in NBA history free five feet from about the free throw line you're just giving them a free throw line jumper which as you can imagine from five guys who shoot 85 to 90 percent at the free throw line is it's a nightmare for you you can't stop them on offense you just simply can't and Draymond is an absolute supercomputer on defense his un he was unlocked in 2015 and he became a player that I don't think is totally replicable in NBA history I say not totally replicable physically and talent wise in a lot of ways he is but his brain is not and I think that's where a lot of other teams fell down that you know the the Rockets have PJ Tucker that they started to bring in and you had these guys coming in with the Draymond body types I mean I think of Bam now and Bam is so much more talented than Draymond he is so much more physically gifted he's an incredible passer maybe not as good as Draymond certainly I don't think he's as good in the open floor as Draymond is or maybe now was Uh, it's tough to say but he will never have the IQ that Draymond has. Draymond is an absolute monster on the defensive end and it comes from good physical tools paired with a savant level IQ on that end and it shows because their defense as I said they explode on offense and their defense remains the same and that to me is the sign that something has changed that they have found ways to not lose what they had on defense with a very solid system they had before with what like David Lee, Bogut, you know, Iggy, 
it's not an incredible it's not it's tough to say really because I put a lot of it on Draymond but also Iggy is one of the great perimeter defenders wing defenders of his generation maybe the best wing defender of his generation Clay is a wonderful point of attack defender less good off ball but I think he gets a bit overrated because point of attack defense is the most obvious one to see you know when you're seeing the defender against the ball handler you're more focused on what that defender's doing rather than in off ball action I think Clay can get cut on quite easily compared to some other great defenders but then you have guys like Bogut who is a wonderful center for this system you have guys like Steph who he works hard like he gets shat on on defense a lot but he works quite hard on that end more than I think a lot of players do and then you have this added bonus something I haven't even hit on yet with this team which is that between the three of them the big three of Steph Clay and Draymond they might be the most scalable big three in NBA history by which I mean all of them can add to another team you can keep adding them you put Steph Curry on the Showtime Lakers they become a better team you put Clay Thompson on the Showtime Lakers they become a better team you put Draymond Green on with LeBron James they become a better team you put any of these players with basically any team in NBA history they that team will become better or they should become better and that's not the case for some of the greatest players ever like you put LeBron on this Golden State Warriors team how much better can they get you know like say LeBron was added instead of Kevin Durant how much better can this team get whereas you add Kevin Durant and this team does get better because you have these incredibly scalable players next to another very scalable player and that's not the case for guys like Magic or LeBron or even Jordan to an extent these incredible players who kind of need the ball who kind of need to control what's happening rather than letting a system take control for them and that's something I where I think this Golden State Warriors team really shines through and why as we'll probably see later they improve by adding another top 10 player top 15 player in NBA history to their roster so number 5 2015 Golden State Warriors. Moving on to number four, the 2018 Golden State Warriors. The 2018 Golden State Warriors are in the regular season offensively 94th percentile, defensively 64th percentile. Ooh, there we see again that that fall for teams that have won the championship and are defending their title. Overall, 90th percentile their final ratings offensively 97th percentile ever defensively 96th percentile ever overall 99th percentile ever plus 8.5 remember with the lakers it was plus 8.3 with the 2015 warriors it was plus 8.4 and now we're up to plus 8.5 and i think this 2018 golden state team suffers a bit from what we talked about with the 93 and 98 Bulls last episode in that defense just isn't there. 
in the regular season, and that hurts them. Because we can talk as much as we want about would this team actually beat this team if they played. That's not all we're doing here. We're looking at how good a season did you have. To have a season as good as possible, you need to really bring it every night. And if you're the champion, if you're getting beaten up by these teams, because when you come to town, you are the show. For 82 nights, you are A-team's NBA Finals, especially if you are the Golden State Warriors, if you're the Miami Heat, the Heatles, or if you're the Jordan Bulls, or the Showtime Lakers, or the Bird Celtics, these legendary teams, or the Shaq Kobe Lakers, you are the show. When you come to town, the other team is fired up. They've had their Weetabix. They are ready for you. They've studied. It's some guys who wouldn't study game tape to go up against Nicholas Batum or fucking name a random backcourt player. They are going to be studying the tape for Clay Thompson and Steph Curry because guess what? You're the show. You're the big fish in the pond and the other fish are looking at you. I say all this, they still absolutely shut down the playoffs. They absolutely crush teams in the playoffs. It's one of the 10 to 15 greatest playoff runs ever. Now, with that being said, I think actually one of the problems with the 2018 Warriors that would really, really obviously rear its head in the 2019 season is how thin they are below the top, top level. Below the big four they had in Durant and Clay and Steph and Draymond, Nick Young is Swaggy P, is playing sixth man minutes. He plays the sixth most minutes of any player on this team in the regular season. Iggy and Livingston have gotten three years older than they were in that first platoon in 2015. Obviously, by this point, Bogut and Barnes and Barbosa and all these other quality rotation players, these eighth man, ninth man players that don't move the needle by themselves, but you add up all of their values across an entire season. Maybe when, you know, Clay's twisted his ankle or when KD needs to go, you know, he stubbed his thumb or something, you know, stubbed his finger on a basketball and he needs to go down for a few days you don't have that platoon to step in. That's an issue. And I don't need to tell you when this became a big issue in the 2019 season. We all know that. With that being said, this team is still riding on the inertia of the 2017 season. And that inertia drags them to plus 8.5. One of the greatest teams ever. I mean, you, you heard that the 2001 Lakers were the 13th best. The Golden State were the 11th best. Naturally, we are now moving into the top 10 teams of all time. So this team that I've been kind of ragging on, much like those Bulls teams where like I'm trying to pick apart issues with them about why they're not as good as other Bulls teams, we are still talking about some of the greatest teams ever. And that's what this 2018 Golden State Warriors team was in spades now i think i will move on actually to number three because number three i think is quite interesting and i was shocked when i saw this team at number three i think you will be too the 2016 cleveland cavaliers 
That's right. The 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers are the third best team of this entire era. They are better than the 2015, 2016 and 2018 Golden State Warriors by my plus minus. And let's get the fuck into that because what? Regular season, offensively, 89th percentile. Defensively, 72nd percentile. Overall, 89th percentile. So what is going on here? Like really, what is happening Because when we get into the final plus minus, we're looking offensive rating, 99th percentile, the 8th best offense ever in my book. Final defense, 88th percentile, which is good. Not incredible, but very good. And overall, obviously, 99th percentile, plus 8.7, which puts them in line with what the Chicago Bulls were in 91 and 92 and what the boston celtics were in 86 the cavaliers fall within that range within those three teams and why the hell is this happening it's because the cleveland cavaliers have one of the three to five greatest playoff runs ever they absolutely demolish the teams they go up against in the playoffs like it has nothing to do with the fact they beat a 73 win team I couldn't give a toss that they beat a 73-win team. None of what I'm looking at has anything to do with wins and losses. It has nothing to do with directly who you played. It has to do with how well you played them. And it's not that they beat the 73-9 and Warriors. It's the level they had to go to to beat them. So it is, it's tangentially related to who they beat, but it's related in how it made them a better team in how good they had to be to beat that team. Not just that they beat them, but that they reached this level, which, as I said, I think a couple Bulls teams, the LA Lakers, Golden State Warriors, that's about it. In terms of teams that came close to the playoff performance the 2016 Cavaliers had, and... I think their regular season numbers are a bit underplayed because Irving was injured for a lot of the regular season. He comes back in the playoffs and obviously plays excellent in the finals. He, I mean, we can talk about just the shot, but that's just one shot. But he has an excellent game six, an excellent game five. He really plays well against the Golden State Warriors. He really plays well across that entire playoff runner. He gets like... You know, he's averaging like something like 25, 5 and 5 for that playoff run. Really top, top level scoring guard, kind of scoring first option. Bear in mind, he's a second option, but he's scoring like a first option in these playoffs. He's playing at that kind of level of someone like an Allen Iverson or a Derek Rose. He is playing a very comparable level to them in my opinion, because none of them are very incredible defensive players, but they all bring a certain level on offense. And when you add that to LeBron James in 2016, LeBron James's 2016 finals, I said this about the 1991 Jordan finals. I will say it again about the 2016 LeBron finals. If you ever want to say someone had the greatest finals performance ever, compare it to LeBron in 2016. LeBron, just the raw numbers he puts up are about 30, 10, and 10. 
with two blocks and two steals. It's it's absolutely monstrous. Like his 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 stat line is it's singular in NBA history. It is literally what's the best you can imagine someone playing in a series. LeBron basically does that in 2016 and that really carries them over the top because this Cavs team is certainly not the most talented. It's the most talented Cavs team that was in this run, obviously. I think it's the best LeBron team ever, this 2016 Cavaliers team. Yeah, I would say that without almost, without question, it's the best LeBron team ever. I mean, plus 8.7. I can't even remember what comes close to that in terms of um, the next best team. It would be a Heat team or maybe a team in the first Cleveland run. Like that 2009 team was a monstrous team that never made it to the finals, but is one of the greatest teams to never make it to the finals. But this team is with almost without question the greatest LeBron team ever. And it's still not even close in terms of overall talent level from all the top five, top 10 players in the team compared to the teams around them. When we're talking about the 86 Celtics, the early 90s Bulls, you know, the Golden State Warriors, these teams that are in the same ballpark as the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers, it's really not close in terms of overall talent. This is LeBron James's magnum opus. That finals is LeBron James's greatest achievement in my book. Maybe And maybe by the time you listen to this episode, that's been eclipsed by the 2020 finals. Maybe he does something better. It wouldn't surprise me if he did something comparable because when I look back and at all the greatest finals by small forwards ever, it was basically the greatest LeBron finals and then the greatest everyone else finals. I think in terms of the top 10, I think it was either five or six of them were LeBron James performances. So it wouldn't surprise me if he did something like that again this year. But I don't think anything compares to that, to 2016 finals. I think it might be the greatest finals in NBA history, both as an actual series. As a series, it wasn't as great because there were a lot of blowouts. The last game seven was a slugfest a tough watch in a lot of places like it the basketball was very gritty uh, with some explosive moments tossed in but the series itself was a lot of blowouts before a tough game seven but LeBron's actual performance level in 2016 might be the highest of anyone but then I think also LeBron has a lot of contenders for that so it's really pick your poison but the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers, not going to hear anything more about it. Top 10 team of all time. You can disagree. You can say that they're not even a top 20 team of all time. I disagree. Top 10 of all time, quite safely, and the third best team of their era. And with that, we were down to the last two. The second best team of the era the 2014 San Antonio Spurs, the beautiful game Spurs living up to their name, putting up the second greatest season of any team in this era. And they are 
the anomaly. Let's get into it. Regular season, offensive ratings, 89th percentile. Defensively, 93rd percentile. Overall, they're in the 98th percentile. Very strong team. Offensive final rating, 97th percentile. Defensively, 98th percentile. Overall, obviously, 99th percentile. Plus minus, plus 9.2. Plus 9.2. We just went from, you know, we started on plus 8.3 with the Lakers, then plus 8.4 with the 2015 Golden State Warriors, plus 8.5 with the 2018 Golden State Warriors, plus 8.7 with the 2016 Cavs, and now plus 9.2 with the 2014 Spurs. That is a seismic jump forward. And you better believe that propels us into a top five team in NBA history. Now, why is this an anomaly? Because every team in the top 20 teams ever has at least one top 15 to top 20 player of all time in their absolute prime. Except the 2014 Spurs. Which has Tim Duncan, obviously, but we are talking about a, what, 36, 37-year-old Tim Duncan, something crazy like that. They didn't have a 20-point scorer. I think they didn't even have a 17-point scorer. Tony Parker is the best scorer on this team, and he's, what, 16.7 points per game in the regular season. They are, I think... How I would describe the beautiful game Spurs is this is a, about the greatest teams of all time. But the actual word team is obviously something a bit more nebulous than just this idea of, you know, the greatest team of all, the greatest season by a team ever. Like the actual noun, a team, like greater than the sum of your parts, working together in tandem with other individuals to form a collective. I think the 2014 Spurs is very, very likely the greatest team of all time. Because if you want to look up the greater than the sum of their parts in the dictionary, it should show you a picture of the beautiful game Spurs. Because there is absolutely nothing like them when you think of their roster, when I list you now, their top nine guys, their big nine for the second greatest team of a 20-year era, one of the five greatest teams of all time, you have 37-year-old Tim Duncan, Marco Bellinelli, Tony Parker, Kawhi Leonard, only 22 at this point, a defensive player, Boris Diaw, Danny Green, 36-year-old Ginobili, Patty Mills and Thiago Splitter as their ninth man and kind of second center. That team is the second greatest team of their era. Apart from, I mean, you know, Manu is at his prime. He was probably an all NBA level player. Tony Parker, certainly an all star for multiple years. Tim Duncan, obviously one of the five to 10 greatest players ever. Now an old man. Kawhi Leonard, going to be one of the best players in the NBA in his prime, is still a young, young player, primarily a defensive player. And they put up this team, which has a 
their offensive rating, their final offensive rating is the 38th best ever. Their defensive rating is the 29th best ever. They're one of only three teams to be top 50 in both categories. The other one we will get to next, and the one before them were the 1996 Chicago Bulls. So think of the company the 2014 Spurs are in. The 1996 Chicago Bulls, they are a legitimate contender against. The 1971 Milwaukee Bucks, they are a legitimate contender with. This team is, I think, partially this comes down to the fact that the 2014 Spurs revolutionized the game in a lot of ways by, this is actually a term I'm going to steal from J. Carl Mann, they had a new vocabulary for basketball. They incorporated a cutting and extra passing system that was unlike anything anyone had seen. Like the 1986 Boston Celtics are maybe the most beautiful passing team in NBA history until we get to the 2014 Spurs. If you have never seen, there is a, a wonderful thing on YouTube. There is, if you just put in the beautiful game Spurs in YouTube, there's a two-parter, both of them about five minutes, and it's just poetry on a basketball floor. It is, it's one of the most beautiful things you will ever see. It's like watching a Roger Federer compilation of him in his prime. It's like watching Barcelona in the under Pep in twenty in two thousand nine two thousand eleven seasons, the real tick attacker prime of Barcelona football. It is the zenith of what team games can be played like. And I think in a lot of ways, that is what the 2014 Spurs are. They are the peak of what a group of individuals can achieve on a basketball floor without relying on the individual skill or the ability of any one individual. They are just, they're just poetry in motion. There's there's multiple times where you just think, my God, you know, from like the right wing, from like the right baseline, someone will drive and collapse and then they'll kick it all the way to the left corner where then that guy will drive and collapse and then they'll kick it to the top of the key. And by now the defense is on its like third or fourth scramble already and then they'll drive into the lane. And before you know it, they're going up against, you know, it's like the shooting guard and he has like the center and the point guard on him because they've just been scrambled so many times and then he just dumps it off for an easy layup for Tim Duncan and you think what the fuck have I just watched I've just seen like this is a professional basketball team that looks like like I was playing against a professional basketball team that's what some of these opponents look like when they go up against the 2014 Spurs like they are just mentally two or three steps behind them and this comes down to I think this vocabulary concept that the San Antonio Spurs are incorporating a lot of movement concepts that teams just didn't have answers to. They didn't have answers to because they hadn't seen them before. And because they hadn't seen them, they hadn't been able to build up this vocabulary of how to express what was happening and how to understand what was happening to them. And that gives this 2014 Spurs team, I think, an edge on their competition, which a lot of teams, like we talked about it with the Jordan triangle and we talked about it with the Golden State Warriors and they're incorporating 
all of these concepts together. The 2014 Spurs have this in this Eurobasket style they play, but with real NBA players and real NBA talented players and with Pop kind of building this team. Like there isn't, there really isn't a comparison you can make to the 2014 Spurs because, as I said, if I look at the rest of the teams in the top 10, in the top 20, I'm talking about teams that have a prime Shaq. They have Steph Curry. They have Kevin Durant. They have Magic Johnson. They have, you know, the um, Kobe Bryant and Jordan and Wilt Chamberlain and LeBron James. And they have all of these players in their absolute primes. And most of them don't hold a candle to the 2014 Spurs, who really exemplified what is possible on a basketball floor. If people, in the words of Greg Popovich, they are made up of people who have gotten over themselves. They are made up of people who are willing to sacrifice for the team. And I can't remember who exactly said it, but someone said in that five to ten minute clip that I'm recommending you go watch, someone says they're a team where it's clear that every single member of that team is willing to sacrifice for the next man up. Every single player is concerned with team glory, not individual glory. And that shows in the stat sheet and how ungaudy and how unimpressive a lot of them are. And it shows up in the impact this team has in NBA history in terms of comparisons with other great teams. Because no no Showtime team compares to this team. Only the twenty, only the 1996 Chicago Bulls in those Jordan runs compares to this team. No LeBron team has reached the heights. You know, no Bird team, no Shaq team, no Kobe team, no Wilt team, no anyone apart from a couple of teams have reached the heights that the 2014 Spurs did. And I think for myself and for a lot of other people, because of that, because of, you know, how, what an underdog, I say an underdog story, they are incredibly talented. These are all incredibly talented players. Boris Diaw is a monster. He really is. Like, there are all these talk, there are all these um, stories about, you know, his physical attributes breaking, like, the records on, like, the vertical jump. And then, obviously, he's a wonderful passer at the big man position at the power forward at the time. Now he'd probably be playing a lot of small ball center. But at the time, he playing the power forward position wonderful passer obviously Manu is a wonderful passer Parker Duncan Kawhi makes some wonderful extra passes in the highlight reels they're a great passing team and they're a willing passing team but it's just there's something extra about them and it's why I think for myself and for a lot of people they exemplify what team basketball is and they're my favorite team of all time I think for some of you listening they'll be your favorite teams of all time already if they are not go look at them on YouTube and just sit in awe for 5 10 15 20 minutes just watching highlights watching watch a whole game go back and watch some of those final games where they blow the 2014 heat off the floor 
the 2014 Heat were a wonderful team. They really were. The 2014 Heat, in my estimates, were the best Miami Heat team of the entire LeBron run. And they got absolutely demolished in the finals by the San Antonio Spurs. The 2014 San Antonio Spurs, top five team of all time, plus 9.2, one of only four teams to crack plus nine. Amazing. And with that, we are on to the final, final team in this entire three-parter. There will be more parts to this. We're going to be looking at the best offenses and defenses, and then we're going to run down the actual greatest teams. But I just wanted to give some acknowledgement. This is the last of this little era run we're looking at. You can probably guess them already, but the greatest team of this whole era and the greatest team of all time. I'm just going to lay that out there for you now because it's not close. The 2017 Golden State Warriors. Regular season offensive rating 98th percentile. Defensive rating 94th percentile. Overall 99th percentile. The fourth greatest regular season ever. If I actually... This is them with players missing. Healthy, they are the greatest regular season ever. And bear in mind, like, you know, the records, the best teams sit between about plus 11, plus 12 in the regular season with their SRS prior to my adjustments for inflation across different eras. The Golden State Warriors, when they're healthy, are more like plus 14, which is easily the greatest regular season ever. But then we get to their final ratings. Offensively, 99th percentile, fourth best offense ever. Defensively, 97th percentile, the 46th best defense ever. So they, the 1996 Chicago Bulls and the 2014 Spurs, are the only teams to crack top 50 in offense and defense. Overall, obviously, 99th percentile, 100th percentile overall. I'm just going to run through now the best teams in some of the in the other episodes so you can get a real glimpse of how good these teams are. So the Chicago Bulls that were in the top 10 and came second and third in that episode were plus 8.7 each. Then the Milwaukee Bucks in 1971 plus 9.1. The San Antonio Spurs in 2014, plus 9.2. The 1996 Chicago Bulls, plus 9.9. So you can see that gap from 2014 to 1996 Chicago Bulls, huge. That is, the Chicago Bulls were easily the greatest team of all time, plus 9.9. The 2017 Golden State Warriors, plus 10.8. The gap between them and the Chicago Bulls is bigger than the gap between the Bulls and fourth, and then it's bigger than the gap between fourth and 14th. It's 
huge. There is really no question because then we get into the playoffs and the Golden State Warriors have the second best playoff run besides the 2001 Lakers of all time. This is really just, I mean, we knew at the time 2017 Warriors had the chance to be the greatest team of all time and the 2017 Warriors almost lackadaisically went out and did it. There is just a level of joy to the way they played and there's a there's an air of inevitability to the way they played that year. It's the 2015-2016 Warriors plus Durant and they add to each other. Like I laid the seeds earlier talking about the 2015 Warriors and talking about how that big three of Draymond and Clay and Steph are so scalable. They can fit in a lot of teams ever and continue to make those teams better and better. You can put Steph on a 60-win team, he makes it better. You can put Steph on a 70-win team, he makes them better. Same with Clay, same with Draymond, and of course, the same with Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant slots into a 73-9 and team and he makes them way better than they are. And they are already, that 2016 and 2015 Golden State Warriors team, those teams, they're pushing the boundaries of what's possible. They are pushing up against maybe a step below the top, top Chicago Bulls teams, but they are pushing against what is possible in team basketball. And the 2017 Warriors just blow through that. They blow through it like like nothing in NBA history before them. There isn't really a comparison for how much they destroy the record book by like the 1996 bulls i guess are the next comparison but even then it's not quite the same i'd have to go back to i think probably the 1967 philadelphia 76ers are probably the closest comparison to how much better they were than the second best team than the team that was best before them because Apart from a near-perfect finals game from the the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2017, the Golden State Warriors would have gone 16-0. Like we talked about the LA Lakers in 2001, going nearly going 15-0, ending up going 15-1 thanks to a wonderful game from Iverson and the terrible game from Kobe taking it to OT and then losing. The 2017 Warriors are one near-perfect game by the Cavaliers away from being 16-0. And I wonder, given what I've just said about the 2001 Lakers and the 2017 Golden State Warriors, I wonder if it's physically possible to sweep the playoffs. Because if they can't do it, it's going to take a real monster, monster team to come along and do it. Bear in mind that 2017 Cavs team blew them out in Game 3. No, Game 4, not Game 3. They were 3-0 down going into game four, and the Cavs had a 68% true shooting as a team, 68% true shooting in that game four to save themselves and blow out the Golden State Warriors before them falling in five. Kevin Durant and Steph Curry may be creating the greatest tandem scoring-wise in NBA history. It's either them or Shaq and Kobe in that run. But just to give you some numbers, just so you understand how incredible Kevin Durant and Steph Curry were 
Kevin Durant in the regular season, I'm using per 75 and then adjusted relative true shooting numbers. So it's their true shooting versus league average. In the regular season, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry both put up 28 points per 75 possessions, which is about a per 36 in 2020 numbers. Kevin Durant does it on plus 10% true shooting. Steph Curry does it on plus 8% true shooting. Both of those figures, that 28 and 10, 28 and 8, they are the numbers of players who are the 10 greatest scorers of all time. That's the type of numbers you would have to put up to be over an extended period of time to be one of the 10 greatest scorers in NBA history or even top five scorers in NBA history. The Golden State Warriors have two of them at the same time playing together. In the playoffs against tougher opposition, Steph Curry goes from 28 plus 8 to 28 plus 10 in the playoffs in 2017. Kevin Durant goes from 28 plus 10 to 29 plus 13. Kevin Durant's 2017 playoff run and finals, they are up there with, if I had to name the greatest finals performances in NBA history, I've actually done a thing on it and we will eventually do a series looking at it. Kevin Durant's 2017 rivals, LeBron's 2016, Jordan's 1991, Shaq's runs with the LA Lakers, Magic's 1987, Tim Duncan's 2003, which is one of the great, great finals performances. Durant is right up there. And actually, Steph is as well. His 2017 playoff run and finals run, it's overshadowed by Durant because Durant is the new shiny toy in that team. And Durant probably does outplay Steph just looking at the raw numbers, but Steph puts up one of the great point guard performances in the playoffs or the finals, enough to rival any Magic Johnson performance, who is the real standard bearer for point guard levels of play in the modern era, in the playoffs and in the finals. Steph rivals that, and he might not even be held a candle to what Kevin Durant did. And I think it actually speaks a lot to Steph's singular ability as a player and how unique he is among players as talented as him in NBA history that he goes from being a two-time MVP, a unanimous MVP in 2016, two-time finalist, an NBA champion, one of the great scorers in NBA history with his own team. He puts up a 67-win team, a 73-win team as the star player. And at that point, people are talking about him as if he's one of the greatest players of all time, which he is. Certainly one of the greatest peaks of all time. Greatest player, it depends how much you want to value longevity over peak, whatever, whatever. We're not going to get into that. He has every right to say at that point, this is my team, fuck off Durant, I'm the man, you want to come here, you are my second fiddle, I've won, you haven't, I'm a two-time MVP, you're a one-time MVP, this is my team, these are my fans, you do as I say. He does the complete opposite. Steph Curry invites, he lobbies to get Durant to come there. He, When Durant comes there, he incorporates him into the offense far more than I think basically any other superstar in NBA history would. He plays off-ball a huge amount more. He, in 2016, I think his off-ball scoring is somewhere between about 
10 and 15 percent of his total offense. In 2017, we're talking closer to 30-35% of his total offense is coming from off-ball movement. He willingly gives up the ball to Kevin Durant. He sets screens for Kevin Durant. He runs around screens and that unselfishness and that absolute mentality of how do I make my team better? How do I take this incredible talent in Kevin Durant, this all-time player, and not feel threatened by him as another all-time player, and in fact, augment my game so that we can play well together. In that sense, I think Steph, I don't want to say he's the most valuable player in NBA history, because I don't think he is, but I think as a ceiling raiser, and as a glue to your team, and as someone who you would want on your team, I think once you get past the obvious God-given natural ability and insane, insane athleticism, talent and brain of people like Jordan and LeBron, I think Steph is right there in terms of who you want on your team because Steph will raise your ceiling to levels. Offensively, he raises the ceiling of a team to a level I don't think anyone else ever has. There is a wonderful YouTuber called The NBA Storyteller who named, if Shaq is the most unstoppable player in NBA history, Steph Curry is the greatest force in NBA history. And I think there isn't a better way to describe what Steph Curry is than the greatest force in NBA history. I've said all that. They also have Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is pretty good at basketball. With that, I'm going to leave you. I think that is all that needs to be said. I think we've hit the end of this era discussion. And yeah, that is the end of this three parts of talking about different eras. Next week, we're going to be looking at the greatest offenses and defenses. And I'll do a little bonus looking at the worst teams in NBA history. And I don't, I don't want to be harsh with them. I think it's kind of fun looking at some of these teams. And then after that, we're going to do a quick finale wrap-up where we're going to go through the top 20 teams in NBA history, quick fire, just going to rattle you through all the numbers just so you have it all there in one piece without all the extra fluff of me talking about the historical context, the players, what happened that year. That will be coming next week and the week after, by which time this 2020 season will have finished and maybe I'll throw in a little extra bit on there talking about how these teams wrap up. Or maybe I'll do that the week after. I'll do a 2020 review of how these teams looked. But that is it, guys. Thank you so much. Subscribe, like this podcast. Please listen to all the other ones we had. We have a great one that just came out about future duos in the NBA. It's a really spirited discussion Steve, Brett, and I have about LeBron James, duos of the future, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Kawhi, PG, Jimmy Butler. Is Jimmy Butler a top 10 player? Probably not, but we're going to argue about him like he is. It's a lot of fun. Go join us on Facebook at Overstated NBA. We have a lot of fun discussions. Shout out all of you who have listened to parts one, two, and three of this. We're going to be back next week with a brand new episode. See you then.